general area that my group and I, um, group of graduate students and postdocs are interested in. Um, and then to, a little bit later in the talk, just kind of give you some specifics of, of uh, some of the research that we're really interested um, in working on um, right, right now. And the general area is we are interested in the molecules that plants make. And these molecules um, are often called natural products. Uh, sometimes they're called uh, specialized metabolites or secondary metabolites. I'll get into that um, in, in a little bit. And these molecules have been used for centuries um, in human medicine. And I've just given a couple of examples here. And I encourage you, um, Allison has written a beautiful book, um, which has far more examples than what I've shown on this slide, of some of the plants that grow around the world and the molecules that have been extracted from them and how they're used um, to, to really help um, improve um, human life. And just um, a couple of examples. Um, uh, some of these um, uh, plants that I've shown here, for example, um, the Pacific yew tree makes this molecule shown here, which is called Taxol, which has been uh, extremely successful in treating uh, breast cancer. Um, morphine um, is um, uh, pain medication uh, uh, produced in uh, opium poppy, shown here. And I'm sure we all know morphine also has a, has a darker side to it in that we can do a little bit of chemistry on this molecule. Namely, we can just put a very small group on these two hydroxyl groups here, and that converts morphine into heroin, which has a much more pronounced effect. So sort of the um, uh, uh, op uh, opium poppy is, is both a good and a bad crop, depending on how you look at it. Um, and then the plant that I'm going uh, to talk about um, uh, right uh, um, uh, for the next you know, 45 minutes or so, which um, Allison mentioned, is Catharanthus roseus or Madagascar periwinkle, which makes um, any number of, of what we call natural products. But probably um, the most one of the most complicated ones that it makes is this molecule called, uh, shown here, vincristine. And then there's a very similar molecule um, uh, that I essentially use interchangeably called vinblastin with a very, very similar chemical structure. Okay, so the question that my group is really interested in asking is how do the plants actually make these molecules? Um, and this, this is a slide with a lot of chemistry on it. And um, I, I had a, a friend who I, I worked with as a postdoc, and uh, it, it was a biochemistry group, so we, we drew chemical structures. And, and uh, she told me this story about how she was sitting on a train and this guy she was sitting next to was um, you know, flirting with her, and she was really not interested. So to get rid of him, uh, she pulled out her copy of the Journal of the American Chemical Society. So I, and then he left. Um, so I, um, but I just kind of, if you're interested in chemistry, you'll like the slide. If you're not, I just want to kind of make a, a few key points. Um, and the first key point is that this is a really complicated molecule down here. Uh, this has actually been blasted out of Vaporstein, just to, well, pra practically the same. Um, and this really complicated molecule starts off from this very simple molecule shown up here. And this is a molecule that's found in pretty much all organisms. It's, it's called DMAP, dimethyl allyl pyrophosphate. And it's used in many, many different biochemical processes. It's used to make other molecules. Uh, sometimes this uh, molecule will come along and get it, attach itself uh, to a protein, for example. It, it does many, many uh, different things. But in Catharanthus roseus specifically, this molecule, DMAP, can actually get derivatized through this very complicated series of steps that I'm showing here, um, and eventually um, uh, form vinblastin. 
which is a complicated molecule that really only a very few plants, in fact, Catharanthus roseus is the only known plant that makes this molecule. And so while DMAP has a wide variety of very general functions, um, then blastin is a very specialized molecule, so it's sometimes called a specialized metabolite, um, that has presumably a very specialized function. And we're not really sure exactly what the function of vinblastin is, um, but it's very likely that Catharanthus roseus makes this molecule for a defensive purpose. Um, it's actually a toxic molecule, and we use vinblastin in human medicine as an anti-cancer agent. Um, so if we um, uh, inject vinblastin into somebody with um, leukemia or a variety of other types of cancer, um, this will actually kill white blood cells. Um, so it, it, and it does it by um, interfering with the way the cell binds. Um, it, it interferes with, um, if you're familiar with um, uh, cell biology, it interferes with something called microtubules, which is basically the skeleton of the cell. And it just completely messes up how that skeleton forms. So it is a toxic molecule, and that's how it cures cancer. It, it, it kills cancer cells as, as well as some uh, healthy cells as well. Um, so it is not kill um, cancer cells until it gets to the bottom one, or does it start? Would, would some of the ones on the second row? That's a that's a great question, um, and this is by far the most potent molecule out of all of the ones that I've shown here. There is a little bit of evidence that this molecule up here by itself, and if you look closely, you can see that this molecule is actually sort of over in here. Um, this molecule by itself has a little bit of uh, toxic activity, but it's not nearly as potent as, as the whole molecule. Yeah. Um, uh, but we believe that the plant actually makes this uh, to defend itself against herbivores. So presumably it makes this, this toxic compound an animal will come along and eat the leaves. It's probably not going to want to eat too much of the leaf because it will make itself sick by eating too much of this. Um, that's not really definitively proven in the case of Midlassin, but it's the most likely hypothesis for why the plant would actually make such a complicated and energetically expensive molecule. The plant burns a lot of energy making this, this, uh, this compound. So what my group is really interested in is sort of figuring out what these arrows are and, and how this actually happens, which is kind of a mixture of biology and chemistry. And again, just kind of a primer, um, and I apologize if, if you, know, you, you remember this from your biochemistry and biology um, uh, courses you know, that, that you, you may have taken. But um, what's involved is um, every living thing makes genes, pieces of DNA. Um, and um, many of these genes encode proteins, which are called enzymes. And enzymes are proteins that are capable of doing chemistry, so chemical transformations. Um, and so, for example, I've just shown you one example of an enzyme that we're interested in, uh, involved in the blast and biosynthesis. This is one of the steps. This is one of these simpler starting materials. And what this enzyme does is it um, uh, uh, um, interacts with this particular molecule, it holds it in a specific three-dimensional shape, and then the enzyme has in hand this uh, uh, atom of hydrogen uh, with lots of electrons around it called H minus. And the enzyme uh, enables this H minus to come in and attack this carbon right here. And that really sets up kind of a chain reaction where now this carbon is gonna come and attack right here. Uh, 
and then this oxygen is going to be able to come in and attack here to generate this molecule here. So this is an enzymatically catalyzed reaction. The enzyme is really doing this by, again, binding to this molecule, holding it in a specific shape, and donating this, uh, this atom of uh, hydrogen, known as a hydride, and then also this um, uh, another uh, atom of hydrogen, only without an electron, called a proton. And I've numbered, it's kind of like a puzzle. I've numbered the carbon so that you can kind of follow uh, which, which, which of these atoms actually gets attached to, to, to the other one. So we're very interested in uh, figuring out how this chemistry actually happens and also identifying both the piece of DNA and the uh, protein, the enzyme that actually catalyzes um, the reaction. And I also want to highlight that in addition to all of this chemistry and DNA that's going on, um, uh, this is happening in the context of a cell. And the plant really uh, takes advantage of um, uh, uh, really kind of having a very complicated factory um, uh, in hand. And so this is a really simple picture of a cell. You know, so this big surplus is supposed to be the cell. This is my sort of drawing uh, in, in PowerPoint. Doesn't have much to do with reality, but <laughs> use your imagination. Um, so this white stuff in the middle, uh, this is called the cytosol, and a lot of the enzymes, and I've just sort of given the uh, abbreviated the names um, uh, in, in red, are located in the cytosol, and some of them are kind of stuck to the side of this particular compartment, which is called the endoplasmic reticulum. Some of them are actually located in the nucleus of the cell. Some of them are actually located in what's called the plastid, uh, which in plants this is where photosynthesis actually happens. Um, and then the plant also has really a big um, kind of a storage compartment um, where lots of um, metabolites and enzymes just kind of get dumped into the storage compartment called the vacuole. And some of the chemical reactions happen in, in, in here as well. So the chemistry is actually very sort of nicely localized to different sections of the cell. So that's also something else that, you know, just to kind of keep, keep in mind. Okay, so and in this slide, um, it, I've tried to um, illustrate in um, with the black arrows. These are steps that are catalyzed by genes that we know. They've been identified. We know what the DNA sequence is. And these red arrow, red arrows are uh, uh, steps catalyzed by genes that we don't know. So there are a lot of red arrows. Um, so we we have not by any means uh, figured out is how... Is it the wrong way around? Other way around. Is it the wrong way around? We've got genes we know in red. Oh, yeah, this is a typo. The red should be the genes that we don't know. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> red is we don't know. All right, I'm going to move. <laughs> Thank you, I'm gonna fix that. <laughs> okay, so, and the question is, why do we care about elucidating these genes and these enzymes? And first of all, because if, if we can, uh, from a fundamental perspective, if we know what the, what the genes are, if we know what the enzymes are, we can really understand the chemistry that's going on. And I, I think that's a very interesting thing to, to understand. If we know what the genes are, there are very clever ways to sort of, for example, figure out where those enzymes are being expressed in different parts of the cell so we can better understand this compartmentalization where these different genes are, are located again, which I think is a really interesting question. But from a very practical perspective, one that I uh, 
and the reason that I use most in attempting to get funding for this work, um, is that vinblastin is only produced in something like 0.002% yields of uh, weight by weight in the leaves of periwinkle, uh, uh, or catharanthus roseus. And maybe Allison, we can start passing around. This is, uh, we very kindly were provided with a specimen of Madagascar periwinkle or catharanthus roseus. And so there is probably, I, I, I assume we haven't checked it, but there's a little bit of the blasted in, the, in, in, each, in each one of those leaves. But a very tiny amount. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how much actually for the treating dose or for the blasted in the direction you haven't heard of this to me? You would need acres. Um, and actually, I'm uh, being a little bit disingenuous. Um, it has, I would, I don't know, in the last maybe 10 years or so, people actually have not isolated the blastin itself. What they've done is they've isolated this molecule and they've isolated this molecule. And it turns out if you take these two molecules and you react them together in the presence of iron chloride, um, this dimerization will happen chemically. So these are still not produced in great yields in catharantis but it's a little bit better. But still, it would be extremely economically advantageous to have much better ways of producing these, even these, these two compounds here. Um, so, and plants have, Catharanthus uh, rosaceus uh, included, um, usually, in, with a few exceptions, but in many cases they've evolved to just produce very, very small amounts of these molecules. They're toxic. Um, there's really no reason for the plant to make grams of them, uh, particularly since it's so expensive uh, in terms of energy for the, for the, for the plant to be able to. Why go and make this, you know, grams of this big toxic molecule un- unless you really need to? And, and there's really no need to. Um, so it's very difficult to get the plant to, to, to make more of this. But if we have, if we know each one of the genes in the vinblastin biosynthetic pathway, there are techniques, and I think maybe this was covered in some of the other lectures, where we can actually transform them into an organism that grows faster. Uh, so maybe, for example, we could put them in yeast, which is a very, uh, it's a microbial organism. It's very convenient to work with. So you can put all the genes in yeast, uh, put it in a fermenter, and grow 100 liters of yeast in 12 hours, and uh, maybe get reasonable yields of the blaster or some advanced precursors to the blaster. There are also ways um, we could um, attach regions in front of the uh, the genes. These are called promoters, um, and there are some. They're called strong promoters that are really good at telling whatever organism you put it in to make a lot of the gene. And presumably, if you make a lot of the gene, you'll make a lot of the enzyme, you'll make a lot of the final product. Um, and I, also, I, um, and I, I, I kind of touched on this, I, there won't be any, if you put them in a faster growing organism, um, there's not going to be any what we call endogenous regulation or repression. So people have tried very hard to try to uh, subject periwinkle to lots of different conditions and e- even do some genetic manipulation of catharanthus to try to get it to make more of it last. And, but this plant has really evolved uh, a lots of regulatory mechanisms to really keep the levels of this compound down. So you can try to upregulate one gene, but in response, the plant will just, without you really wanting it to do so, it will downregulate another one to, to Try to keep these levels of If the level is so small, how do we, as human beings, know that that 
in Glasgow was any good. Yeah, I, yeah, I should have, I meant to tell this story. So, um, and this is, the, the knowledge of Nblasin actually came from folk medicine. And this is actually true of a lot of medicines, um, natural products that, that are used in, in Western medicine. And um, I believe it had been used, uh, people in Jamaica had brewed the leaves of catharanthus for a long time and used it um, as a tea to help alleviate di diabetes symptoms. And I think it was in the 1940s or the 50s, um, uh, a, a Western scientist, I, I believe it was an American scientist, uh, said, okay, we're going to investigate this. We're going to, you know, treat this, you know, investigate this a little bit more rigorously. And so he got a whole bunch of Catharanthus roseus, and he systematically fractioned, he ground up the leaves and, and took various cuts of the extract and tried to assay them for biological activity. And he couldn't find any evidence of diabetic activity, anti-diabetic activity, but he happened to screen it against leukocytes, white blood cells, and managed to, and saw that they really were good at killing them. But vinblastin is so potent that even though there's only a tiny little bit of it in there, they were able to see the biological activity. I actually think, so they saw the biological activity, and it, then it took, I don't know how many years, but it, it, it took a long time to actually isolate that molecule and then figure out its chemical structure. That was actually a, a, a major challenge. Um, yeah, so the idea is we could, if we find all these plant genes, for example, we could put them in yeast and start you know, with something simpler and make it more complicated. Um, uh, we could think of other organisms too, so believe it or not, tobacco is actually an extremely convenient expression system and one that we're, we're looking at in our lab as well. So um, what are the challenges in discovering the genes that make the pathway work? And I, I kind of just want to start by comparing how we look at plant uh, these plant pathways with looking at sort of comparable pathways in microbes. And so I'm just showing again the schematic. This is supposed to be a piece of DNA or a chromosome. And then these red arrows are supposed to be genes. A lot of times you represent genes as an arrow. And this is ergotamine. This actually happens to be a, a, a natural product made by fungus. And one of the really great things about microbes is that generally speaking, all the genes for a given pathway, so all the genes for ergotamine, for example, are all located right next to each other on the, on the DNA chromosome. So you can, and then if you look at the sequence of the genes, we now know enough that we can, we can sequence the DNA of this region of the chromosome or the whole chromosome itself, and we can actually predict what kind of enzyme function one of these genes is going to have. We have a whole database full of genes with verified, validated enzymatic activity. So we can look at the sequence of one of these genes and say, okay, this gene looks like this gene X over in, in this database. So my unknown gene over here probably does a chemical reaction that's fairly similar to X. And that doesn't always work, but it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good start. Um, and then if you have some chemical intuition, you can look at the structure of the molecule and you can sort of try to guess what types of enzymes are needed. So, for example, there's what's called a methyl group here, right here. I can say to myself, okay, there's a methyl group here. That probably means that there needs to be an enzyme called a methyltransferase, which specifically puts methyl groups on things. Um, 
And so there needs to be a methyltransferase. <coughs> One of these genes needs to be encoding something that looks like a methyltransferase. And so it's kind of a puzzle. You can sort of put the clues together. You can look at the sequence of the genes, and you can look at the structure of the molecule, and you can really sort of predict to your, whether or not this particular region of the chromosome is probably encoding or not this, uh, this particular uh, natural product. And then there are lots of nice ways to experimentally validate this, uh, and I'll, I'll mention a few of these a, a little bit later. And the really great thing is that now microbial genomes, they're, they're small, and they can be sequenced extremely inexpensively and very quickly. So could you explain what's the difference? What is a genome? Okay, I'm sorry. So a genome is really just the whole collection of genes. And they're typically um, all linked together. So what I'm showing here on this strand of DNA, this would be a genome. And in uh, genomes, okay, let me back up. Genomes are, because this is going to come into play in the next slide, genomes are composed of chromosomes. So we have um, chromosomes, 26, 52, 26 times 2. We have, we have, I'm not a human biologist. <laughs> <laughs> of DNA floating around in our in, in each one of our cells. And those 46 pieces of DNA, you add them all together, that's the genome. In microbes, um, like bacteria and fungi, you take a little bit of a shortcut because they usually only have one chromosome. So the chromosome equals the genome. Does that make sense? Okay. So the microbial genome, or in this case, the single chromosome, it, it, they're, they're small and they're very easy to sequence and you can usually get a, a sequence of the bacterial chromosome for a couple of thousand pounds um, in a very fast manner. And a couple of thousand pounds to a scientist, science is expensive, so a couple of thousand pounds is cheap, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. All right, so plants are more complicated organisms. And this question is of finding finding the genes is not it's not as simple a proposition as it is in microbes. So first of all, plants don't just have one chromosome; they have lots of chromosomes. And in fact, plants some plants have more chromosomes than humans. Some plants have a bigger genome than humans, which um, some of some people find uh, a little unnerving. Uh, but some plant genomes are much much bigger than, than the human genome, in fact. Um, and the individual genes that encode the enzymes that do the chemistry to make the blasto, for example, they're scattered all over, all of the different chromosomes, all over the genome. Um, so it's now a complicated question, how do we solve this puzzle? So for example, we know, for example, here's another methyl group, we know that there's another methyl transferase that's gonna be involved in the blasto biosynthesis, but there's probably I don't know, 500 methyltransferases in cathyranthus How are we going to figure out which methyltransferase actually catalyzes this reaction? 
So what we need to do is we need to come up with sort of new strategies, sort of new techniques to try to sift through all of, all of this data. And this is actually a question my group is, has, I would say this is a major question we're, we're interested in right, right now. And so the, um, the um, approach that we're taking um, is um, uh, it's, a, it's a sequencing approach. So we're trying to um, uh, sequence plant uh, um, um, DNA. Um, what we're doing is we're not sequencing the genome. We're sequencing uh, the, only the genes that are actually turned on. And this is called transcriptome. And really what this means is, is we're sequencing RNA, not the genomic DNA. So you've got a genome with a bunch of genes on it. Some of those genes are turned on, some of those genes are actually activated and go on to make protein, and some of them stay silent. And it really depends on, um, the, for example, the particular cell type, what the conditions are, what stage of development you're at, um, whether those genes are turned on or not. So for example, your brain, had, a cell in your brain has exactly the same genome as a cell in your liver. They're exactly the same genome. But the genes that are actually expressed in that brain cell are very, very different from the genes that are expressed in your liver cell. And that's what makes them so completely different. A brain cell is very, very different from a liver cell. Same genome but it's the genes that are expressed that are different. And that's called, a, they call it a transcriptome. So the transcriptome of your brain cell is very different from the transcriptome of your, of your cell. And so what we've done is we've taken a whole, we've actually done this for 14 medicinal plants, and I'll, I'll show you the website in a minute, but we were mostly interested in Catharanthus roseus. We have measured the transcriptomes of 17, in this, for the case of Catharanthus rosea, 17 different tissues. So we've taken leaves, we've taken flowers, we've taken roots, we've taken young leaves, old leaves. Um, you can, it turns out you can um, put um, no hormone on, on Catharanthus roseus, and that affects the transcriptome, that affects the genes that are expressed. Um, so there are 17, basically 17 different conditions, and we've sequenced the transcriptome for each one of those 17 tissues. And then we've also checked to see, basically, the blasted levels um, in, in, in all of those tissues. And so what we're trying to do now is we're trying to use these, people call them bioinformatic strategies. We're, basically, we're just trying to sift through this transcriptome data and see if we can come up with clever ways to try to use this data to, instead of searching through 500 metal transferases, maybe we'd be able to say, okay, maybe it's one of these 10 metal transferases as, as opposed to, 500. Um, and this is just, if you're interested, um, if you're interested in plants, I encourage you to take a look. It's a lot of technical stuff, and if you're not interested in transcriptome sequencing, some of it isn't going to be interesting. But there's a list of plants, and there's some nice background information for each one of the plants, and there are some good plants on there. The one that we're, uh, Catharanthus roseus is on this. The other one that we're particularly proud of getting on this is uh, cannabis or marijuana, and uh, somehow uh, we managed to convince the National Institutes of Health that we should sequence the transcript of the cannabis, and I don't know how 
that got approved by the Republican and Tea Party people. But anyway, we probably just slipped through. So anyway, it's it's a I think it's it's an interesting website, and the credit goes to uh, Professor Robin Mule at Michigan State University who, who really put this website together. Okay. All right, so this is this is what we're doing. Okay, what is this? So here are 17 different tissue types here on, on the x-axis. Here are 15,000 genes that we're looking at that are being expressed. So somewhere in these 15,000 genes are the 15 or so genes that we're interested in in, in the blast biosynthesis. And what we can do is we can say, all right, we know these genes are located together on the chromosome. We know that. That's only really the case with microbes. But what we can guess is we can say, okay, we know one of the genes in, in blasting biosynthesis. So for example, we know this is a particular gene here. It's called streptosin glucosidase. That's, that's just the name of it. And this is how this gene is expressed across these 17 different <coughs> tissues. And this is just color-coded, so each one of these little boxes is, which and it all kind of blends together on the slide. I apologize for it, the resolution isn't great. But a green box means that the plant makes a little bit of the gene or expresses a little bit of the gene. Black means it makes some more. And red means that it makes a lot. And that's just the color-coding that somebody decided was going to be used for these types of uh, expression analyses. So, we can load all these data into a computer, and the computer says, okay, this is the expression profile of this known alkaloid gene, streptosin and glucosidase, and what it will do is it will arrange, so all other genes in the transcriptome that are located close by streptosin and glucosidase, these are genes that have a similar expression profile to streptosin and glucosidase. And we're making the assumption that if you have an entire pathway, if all of the genes are going to have similar expression profiles throughout that pathway. So for example, um, in the blastin biosynthesis, step one of the blastin biosynthesis maybe uh, it's expressed <coughs> a lot in the roots and a little in the leaves. Probably step three of the blastin biosynthesis is expressed in the same fashion, say a lot in the roots and a little bit in the leaves. And does that mean a branching pathway? So at one level, you're taking more than one. Yeah, and that, that's a great point. Um, and this, I, I've simplified the pathway in these slides. But vinblastin is actually one of about 130 related natural products. And so really, at many of those steps in that scheme that I showed, you're getting branch points. Um, you're getting side products. You know, the plant's making variations on variations of, uh, of those various metabolites um, in, in the vinblastin pathway. So I'm oversimplifying. Um, our best hope is that sections of the biosynthetic pathway are going to have, yeah, so we're, we're, we're trying to pick out straight lines in this highly branched pathway. And I mean, a, a highly branched pathway does have straight lines, but we have to consider you know, the straight lines individually. Um, but this was actually put together um, by a postdoc in the lab, um, Fernando, 
And Fernando figured out a way. First of all, Catharanthus roseus doesn't just have 15,000 genes in its transcriptome. It has something like 39,000. And Fernando came up with some very clever ways to try to whittle this down to 15,000. Um, for example, uh, we know that the elastin production is increased when we grow the plant in the presence of the plant hormone. So he managed to come up with a way to filter um, and say, all right, we're only going to consider the genes that um, are uh, increased in expression level in response to this plant hormone. So using a bar, you know, a couple of those types of tricks, you could get this down to 15,000 transcripts. And what we noticed is that the genes in the early part of the pathway, so presumably this would be you know, one of the first straight lines in this pathway, actually um, kind of cluster together, which we're really excited about. And this, this is not drawn to scale, and depending on sort of the parameters that you plug into the computer, it changes a little bit, but basically this kind of gives you the idea. We can see in this 15,000 clusters, this little region where a whole bunch of the early genes involved in uh, the blasting biosynthesis are all sort of scratched together. And so that means instead of sort of trying to search through all 15,000 or 39,000 of these, of the transcriptome, we can, you know, really search in a region of, say, two or 300 genes. And that's a much, much simpler problem. Um, we've really narrowed down the, the number of, of gene candidates that we have to search for. And how, how do we add, okay, so great, so we have, let's say we have 300 possible gene candidates, what, what do we do then? Um, we have to experimentally test them. And there, just to kind of give you a little bit of a flavor, there are a couple of ways that we can test and try to figure out what these genes do. And one is we can actually express these genes in some organism. So for example, a very convenient organism to sort of uh, overexpress genes and see what product they make in is uh, uh, tobacco. And there are very convenient ways to just sort of with a syringe, just really syringe in the gene and tobacco, you can sort of fool tobacco into overexpressing that gene. And then we can use a technique called mass spectrometry um, where we grind up the leaf and inject it into this machine and we can see if a compound with, um, uh, with an expected sort of um, uh, mass uh, uh, that correlates to the expected product that accumulates in this leaf after we've, after we've transformed in this gene. And the second way that we can test the function of the gene is we can actually go into Catharanthus roseus or periwinkle and we can say, okay, what happens if we turn off this gene? And it turns out there are very convenient and quick ways to trick the plant into turning off the expression of the gene. Um, and uh, so this is an example where we use this technique to silence a gene involved in um, uh, chlorophyll biosynthesis, so the leaves turn yellow because they're no longer making chlorophyll. So again, we can you know, uh, inject this uh, uh, chemical in there that uh, really silences the gene, our specific gene, um, wait a week or two, and then again, cut off this leaf, grind it up, and put it into this uh, instrument that tells us what uh, the mass of what compounds are accumulating in this compound, and we can see if the blastin is missing. And if the blastin is missing, then presumably we've identified a gene that's involved in the blastin biosynthesis. So those are 